Let's uh, open the Word of God at this point. If you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Just kind of, uh, well, well, we'll look at 1 John chapter 2 particularly and specifically, but just get ready to kind of look at a few things in 1 John. When we talk about being steadfast, uh, we talk about being unshakable as we sung with Patrick leading us, as we, we talk about being able to endure, being strong, all of those things are sort of positive uh, calls and, and that's legitimate and that's right. You have largely been called on a positive note this week to steadfastness, an unshakable, faithful, enduring commitment to the Lord, to His Word, to the truth. I want to throw a negative in, if I can, today. Because being immovable and being unshakable demands that we understand the negative. There are many, many affirming calls in Scripture. But there are an equal number of warnings. And there is a pervasive warning in the second chapter of 1 John that I think gathers up a whole lot of the negative things that we need to be aware of. Let me read you verses 15 to 17 of chapter 2. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The command here, the negative command, is do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Let's back up from this just a little bit. One of the very important parts of the revelation of the character of God is the fact that God is love. In fact, look over at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Back to verse 8, God is love. Down to verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. We talk about that a lot. That's a very popular attribute of God, the fact that God is love. But all throughout Scripture, God's love is on display. God's love is on display, we can say, in common grace. That is to say, the unregenerate world, the unconverted people of the world experience God's love. God's love is manifest in the beauty of creation, in the richness of relationships, in the blessings of life, everything. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the believer and the unbeliever. Common grace, that's called, it is a way that God demonstrates His compassionate, merciful, caring love, even to the world that rejects Him. God's love is particularly manifest, not in common grace, where it's generally manifest, but particularly manifest in saving grace or redemptive grace. And 
God loves his own in a way that grants to them eternal life. So we love to talk about the fact that God loves. That's, that's at the very heart and core of the gospel. Everybody knows John 3.16, God so loved the world. But it's important for us to understand this as well. God also hates. God hates. God, by nature, loves perfectly. God is perfect love. Necessarily, then, God is also perfect hate. No one has the capacity to love like God does. And no one has the capacity to hate like God does. Anyone who loves hates. What am I saying? It's obvious. If you love, you hate whatever threatens the object of your love. God loves perfectly, so he hates perfectly anything that threatens the object of his love. God hates sin, unrighteousness. He hates the wicked. The greater the love, the greater the hatred. For example, in Psalm 97.10, the psalmist says, hate evil. You who love the Lord. If you love the Lord, you hate what dishonors Him. You hate what attempts to diminish Him. You hate what assaults Him. You hate what displeases Him. The purer your love, the purer and clearer your hate. In Psalm 119, 104, we read this, I love your law. I love your law, the psalmist says. I love your word, meaning. So I hate all those who are double-minded. That is, who are not loyal to your word. Psalm 119, verse 113. I love your law. I love your law. So I hate every deviation, every false way. Later in Psalm 119, I love... You, I love your precepts. I love Scripture. Again, I hate every false way. Another verse in that same chapter, verse 163. I love your law. I hate lies. I hate falsehood. God loves perfectly, and He hates perfectly. And the more you are like God, the more you will love and the more you will hate. The perfect love of God demands an equally perfect hatred of what God cannot love. Turn for a minute to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. This is a familiar passage, but it's really an important one along this theme. And we'll drop down to verse 16, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Hate, strong word, 
But abomination is an equally strong word. God hates six, yes, seven things. It's kind of a formula that the Hebrews use to sum up the hatred of God. There, there are many things that God hates even beyond this, but this is kind of, a, kind of a summation of the things that God hates. Please notice. First, haughty eyes. Literally in Hebrew, high eyes. A proud look, some translations say. This is the basic iniquity of all iniquities, pride, which leads to self-will and rebellion against God. That's obvious in the fall of Satan. When there was no sin in the world and God had created the holy angels, the fall of the angels was related to Satan saying, I will, I will, I will be like the Most High. It was rebellion. It was pride that brought about Satan's fall. It was pride that brought about fall of Adam and Eve, it is always the basic sin. The Bible refers to it frequently as lofty eyes, lifting your head as if you're superior to somebody else and looking down on them with a measure of disdain. Psalm 101 says, no one who has haughty eyes or a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I tolerate. God hates pride. There are other things that God hates as well. In verse 16, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates people who lie. God hates cruelty, murder, God hates the pursuit of sin. God hates purposeful iniquity. God hates perjury. God hates divisiveness. Malachi 2.16 says God hates divorce. Isaiah 61.8, God hates wickedness. Jeremiah 44, God hates idolatry, the worship of anything but himself. Amos 5.21, God hates hypocrisy. He says, I hate your songs. Because you're hypocrites. I hate your feasts, your religious ceremonies. I hate them. Revelation 2, God hates false worship. And God hates these things perfectly because they are violations of everything God loves. And God's love, of course, is the emanation of His holiness. So whatever is unholy by necessity, God hates. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to 1 John. There's one other thing that I, I want to point out to you that God hates, and it is this. There is a love that God hates. There is a love that God hates. That may sound like a strange statement, but it's true. There is a love that God hates. And it's in verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If the love of the Father is not in you, then the hate of the Father is in you. 
He hates sin, every false way, evil, and wickedness. This is the love that God hates. A little bit of context, okay? First John. First John is written to give us tests of the legitimacy of our salvation. Starts out with doctrinal tests. How do you know if somebody's a believer? How do you know if they're saved? How do you know if they're on their way to heaven? How do you know if you are? The first is your view of sin. Chapter 1, your view of sin. Do you see the reality of sin? Do you see that reality in your own life? Do you acknowledge your sin? Do you repent and confess your sin? Or you do, or you do, do you deny your sin? Because if you deny your sin, you're calling God a liar. So the first test is your view of sin. The second is your view of Christ. Do you believe in Christ and the gospel? Do you see that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only but the sins of the whole world? So you have doctrinal tests, the test of what you believe about sin, your own sin, and what you believe concerning Christ. Those are doctrinal tests. So if you say you're a believer, then obviously we assume that you see sin the way Scripture sees it and the way it really is, and you see Christ the way Scripture presents Him, and He really is. So there are doctrinal tests. If you deny sin or if you deny Christ, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. Then there are moral tests. That has to do with your behavior. The, the first moral test that shows up here is obedience. Obedience, that's in chapter 2. Earlier in the chapter, you obey His commands. You follow what Scripture says. You walk in the way of obedience. You follow the pattern of Christ. Verse 4 of this chapter, if you don't keep His commands, you're a liar. You're not a believer. The pattern of your life is obedience. And the second moral test is love. Love. Love others. Love the brother. If in verse 9 you say you're in the light, but you hate your brother, the truth is you're in the darkness. The one who loves his brother is in the light. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness. So you have doctrinal tests, what you believe about sin, what you believe about Christ. You have moral tests of obedience to the Word of God and loving others. And here now in verse 15, we're introduced to another moral test. Another moral test. This is the test of the world. What is your attitude toward the world? A true Christian obeys God. A true Christian loves others. A true Christian does not love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. I mean, that's as definitive as it gets. If you love the world, you have not experienced the love of God in your life. That is to say, you're not a believer, you're not a redeemed person. So the sum up of the moral test to know whether you're a believer, do you desire to obey the Word of God and is that a pattern in your life? Do you love others in the sense of biblical love, sacrificial service and compassionate care and seeking their 
best interests and well-being? And do you hate the world? Well, what do we mean by the world? It's used five times in those three verses. This is the word um, cosmos in the Greek. That gets transliterated into English. A lot of people talk about the cosmos. That's the world. The opposite word in the Greek language is chaos. Chaos is the opposite of cosmos. We know what chaos is because that also gets transliterated into English. Chaos means disorder, confusion. Cosmos means order, structure, system. That's the word world. It's not the word for earth. That's a different word. It's not the word for the planet. That's, that's a different word. It is a word that means system, ordered system. Now, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the physical world? Are we supposed to hate the physical world? No. No. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, what did he tell them to do? What did he give him? One assignment. What was it? Take care of what? Take care of the garden. Uh, the Bible says God's given us richly all things to enjoy in this creation. It's an incredible creation. The more we go into space, and now they're talking about landing people on Mars, there's nothing out there, folks. There, are, there aren't any green people flying around in invisible spaceships. And there also isn't any life. It's just terminal kitty litter on every ball floating around up there, or else it's a fireball. Nothing there. But this planet just explodes with life. And we can love this creation. And we give glory to the Creator. And we care for the creation. He's not talking about hating the creation. He wants us to love the creation in a, in a right way and give Him the glory for it. In fact, in the original creation, when God rested on the seventh day and He looked at everything and He said it was what? Very good. And then He rested. And then He told everybody to rest. And you know what that seventh day was really all about? It was all about looking at the creation and saying, this is amazing. We're not talking about hating the physical world. Another possibility would be the human world. Are we supposed to hate people? Well, no. Uh, We're not supposed to hate people. God loves the world of humans. In fact, God loves the world so much that He pours out common grace on them, sent His Son to die. You know all of that. So... What is it that we are to hate if it's not the planet and all that's in it, and it's not the people, what what world are we to hate? Answer, the system of evil set against God. The system of evil set against God. We're talking about a complex of ideas and activities. We talk about the world of politics. We mean the system of politics. We talk about the world of sports. We mean the system with all of its components and elements. And that's how John uses this here, the system of evil. And here's the key thing to understand. This is really critical. This system 
This system of evil is set against God. It is set against Christ. It is set against the truth. It is set against the scripture. It is set against the church and the people of God. It is set to destroy and damn humanity. It is a system of ideas, activities, motivations, purposes that are opposed to God. And you're living in a day when it's really easy, it's really easy to start on the edge of saying, hey, I love all the richness in the world. I love all of the things that have come out of this world. I love all of the beauty of the world and all the technology and all the wonderful things that God has placed in this planet to be extracted by man. I, 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 I love that for its usefulness and its purposefulness. And I, and I want to love the people and they're, they're fascinating and they're interesting and I want to love them. And it's easy to sort of start at that entry point and wind up sucked into the system. Because eventually, the system, the ideas that are against God and against Christ pollute and penetrate all aspects of the creation. Satan is the ruler of this world, John 12. Satan is the ruler of this world. The evil system is under the leadership of a supernatural being who was created at the time this planet was created and the whole of the heavens were created. This is an ancient supernatural being brought into existence as really the worship leader of heaven who fell out of pride, catapulted to the earth with the fallen demons who came with him, he operates this system. It has a head, it has a leader, and it functions as a system under this prince. Ephesians 6 says, as we live in the world, we're literally wrestling all the time with evil spirits, not flesh and blood. And the power of the system is so pervasive that Ephesians 2 says... It literally controls all unredeemed people, all unsaved people. Jesus calls in Luke 16, children of the world. He doesn't mean they're human. He doesn't mean they live on the planet. He means they're part of the system. They're part of the system that is literally overrun and polluted with error and lies and deception so first of all, I'll give you a couple of points to think about. First of all, we hate the world. And we want to hate the world as perfectly as God hates the world because the world does what it does to destroy all that God loves. We are called to hate this world. And there are several simple reasons. Number one, because of what it is. If you're taking notes, write that down. Because of what it is. What it is. John understands this. Verse 1 of chapter 3. The world does not know us because it did not know Him. We are the children of God. 
The world can't relate to us. The world can't comprehend us. The evil, anti-God, anti-Christ, rebellious, proud system cannot comprehend us. Chapter 4, verse 1, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The system is just packed with liars and deceivers, some of them philosophical, some of them psychological, some of them sociological, political, educational, religious, whatever it is. The system can't relate to us. The system is full of liars. Go down to verse 3, chapter 4, and every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus, okay, anyone, any idea, any ideology, any concept that does not honor Jesus for who He is, listen to this, is the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it's coming, it's already in the world. Now let me sum it up. The world is Antichrist. The system is set against God, it is set against Christ, it is set against the church, it is set against you. Jesus said, John 17, 6, you have been chosen out of this world. You've been chosen out of this world. In fact, John says, verse 4, chapter 5, look at it. Whoever is born of God does what? overcomes the world. Your faith made you triumph over the world. What does that mean? That means that you no longer are a victim of the world's lies and deception. Don't love the world because of what it is. It is your enemy, and it is the enemy of souls. I want to show you an illustration of this that, that I often refer to. It, it's a passage that gets overlooked, but 2 Corinthians 10 is really instructive at this point. So as a believer, here's a view of the world that you have to have. 2 Corinthians 10.3. there? 2 Corinthians 10.3. We walk in the flesh. He means we're human. Okay? We're all human. But we don't war according to the flesh. We, we don't fight spiritual battles. We don't come against this complex, sophisticated, supernatural, Satan-led, demon-infested system with human weapons. It, it, it's, that's foolish. That's absolutely ridiculous. The system is too powerful, supernatural, vast, impregnated, formidable for us to play around with superficial weapons. The weapons then, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons are not human, but divinely powerful. So how do we come against this system? We have to have something powerful. 
And if the system is supernatural, the weapon has to be supernatural and even more powerful than the supernatural weapons of the system. And the agent has to be more powerful than Satan. And we know the agent who is the Holy Spirit living in us is greater than the one who is in the world, right? So we fight this battle on a supernatural level with a supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and the truth revealed by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. And this is the only way we can fight it because we're called in verse 4 to destroy fortresses. word fortress means literally that, massive stone fortress. Fortresses were built in the ancient world uh, to be indestructible. That's why they're still around. You go travel in, in Europe, for example, and places that uh, they take you on tours and you will see fortresses in all places across Europe and other parts of the world that still stand because they were so massive. Well, that's how it is. The people in the world are in a massive fortress. What does that refer to? Verse 5. We are destroying fortresses, verse 4. Verse 5, we're destroying speculations. Greek word logismos means ideas. Here's the system again. We're in the world and we have the task of destruction of systems, ideological systems. Logismus, ideas, thoughts, theories, viewpoints, philosophies, religions, any complex of worldly ideas. Further defined, any and every high thing, proud notion, proud idea, raised up against the knowledge of God. Every anti-God idea, anti-God theory, anti-God religion, anti-God philosophy, anti-God perspective... All of it that's raised up against God in literally in a complex of, of concepts that is so formidable, it is like a massive fortress. So here you are in the world as a believer. Uh, the system hates God. The system hates Christ. The system hates the church. The system hates you. And yet you are the only hope of freeing people from these fortresses that become their prisons and their tombs. So how do we fight this war? We smash every idea raised up against the knowledge of God, every ungodly, untrue idea. Verse 5, we then take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So here you are in the world. you got an amazing task. You say, how can I do that? Uh, I, I, I'm not adequate to that. No, of course. Paul, Paul says that in this same letter. Who's adequate? Who's adequate for these things? But our adequacy is not our own. It comes down from heaven. The Holy Spirit is adequate. The Word of God is adequate to smash the lies the complex structures of this world that imprison people and damn them. I just want you to set the picture in your mind. The world hates God, Christ, the people of God, and you as a believer. doesn't mean every individual unsaved person is going to hate you, but the whole system is set against the truth. 
and they can't, at best, they can't understand you. They are under the power of the prince of the air who rules the system. They are basically manipulated by a complex of demonic beings, and they are guided and directed by false prophets, liars, deceivers. But you, you've been delivered from this complex by the grace of God and your salvation. You have overcome the world. Wow. You're outside of it. You're outside of it. That's just amazing. So why would you love it? Love not the world because of what it is. Why would you love it? Love the the beauty of the creation. Love the people. We'll talk a little more about that tonight. But not the complex of the system. Don't get sucked in. Secondly, don't love the world not only because of what it is, but because of who you are. Who are you? Back up in 1 John to verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. When you overcame the world by your faith, you also overcame the ruler of the world, the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The world... The unregenerate people in the world system have no choice. They are under the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. Ephesians 2. He controls their lives. Jesus even said to the Jews in John 8, the Jewish leaders, you are of your father the devil. And he's a liar and he's a murderer And when I speak the truth, you reject me because there's no truth in you. That's how it is to be in the world. You don't know the truth. You're under the total control of liars and an ultimate supernatural liar who is the father of that family, Satan himself. But when you put your faith in Christ, your faith overcame the world. And now... You have become a child of God. You have overcome not only the world, but the evil one who rules the world. That's just amazing. You have nothing to fear from Satan. Sometimes people say that to me. You know, you're preaching the word and you're doing ministry. Do you fear what the devil might do to you? No. I have nothing to fear. I've overcome in Christ the evil one. But look at this for just a moment. Uh, Look closer, and you'll see three levels of spiritual growth here. He says, um, little children in verse 12 is just a general term for all children. 
I'm somebody's child, you're somebody's child, that sense. I will always be the child of my parents no matter how old I am. So that, that term simply means generally children. Okay, we're all children of God because of forgiveness. Uh, God forgave our sins and drew us to himself and we're now his children. But as his children generally, we are broken down into three categories. Some of us are fathers, some of us are young men, and some of us are babies. The word children in verse 13 is, is really the word for babies. So spiritually speaking, you have overcome the evil one, but you fall into three categories. Let's take children. What is, it, what is characteristic of children? Look at the end of verse 13. Children, you know the father. That's spiritual dada. What is a, a, a childlike believer? Someone who just knows the father. I just know God. I've been saved. I don't know much else. This is the, this is the first step of spiritual life. You have been born again. You have been given new life. You have been brought forth, as it were, in the womb of salvation and given life, eternal life, and you're a child. Ah, you're vulnerable. Uh, Ephesians says you could be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You need to be protected. You need to be insulated. You need to be instructed. You need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. But that's a starting point. And even as a child, you have overcome the world by that saving faith and overcome the evil one. But you don't want to stay a child. Be no more children, the Bible says. Grow up. And the second step is I writing to you young men. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. How, how did you do that? The end of verse 14. The word of God abides in you. Now, what does it mean to be a spiritual young man? It means that you know the truth now. You've gone from being a child, don't know much, you know God, you know Christ, that's, that's basically it. Now you know the Word of God. You become spiritually strong. The Word of God is your food. And as you take the Word of God in, you become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And you can tell spiritual young men because they know truth. They know doctrine. Very often they're even combative about that. They want to they argue about theology. They want to take people on. They want to fight for the truth. The evil one's whole system is a complex of lies. Spiritual young men overcome that. They reach a point where they're not duped, they're not fooled, they're not sucked away, they're not drawn off by these lies because they know the Word of God. That's why it's important for pastors who lead the children, the spiritual children in their flocks, to be at least spiritual young men who aren't liable to be victimized by Satan's errors. Because they've grown strong in the Word. That's why seminary is so important, the right kind of education. So that's the next step, being strong because the Word has strengthened you. And false doctrine doesn't entice you. It doesn't trick you. It doesn't fool you. It doesn't deceive you. You see it for what it is because you're strong in the Word. But that's not the highest level. The highest is, fa is fathers. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. What does that mean? It's not just knowing the Bible. It's not just knowing theology. 
It's having walked with God long enough to know Him. To know Him. Paul, Paul got direct revelation from God. He knew the truth. He was so strong. He was never deceived by false doctrine. He was a spiritual young man. He was a fighter. He was a warrior. He was a soldier of the highest order. And he said this, that I may know him. And one of the good things about getting old is uh, you become more enamored with the, with the person and the glory of God than you do with the facts. You walk with God long enough You see his providence unfold every day of your life for long enough, and you know him who's from the beginning. Listen, you're a child of God by faith. Overcome the world. Overcome the evil one. Why would you love what you were rescued from? Why? Don't love the world. Don't love what God hates. Don't love what hates God. Don't love what hates Christ. Because of what it is. And because of who you are. Third point, just quickly. We don't love the world because of what it does. Because of what it does. What does it do? Go down to verse 16. All that is in the world, the whole complex, can be summed up as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and it is not from the Father, it is from the world. All that is in the world is not from the Father. All that is in the world is mutually exclusive from God the Father. All that the world does is appeal to you at the base level. There are three gateways that the world is going to come at you. Number one, the lust of the flesh. We all know that. We know what that means. Sinful desire that arises out of a corruptness Corruptness that's still in our hearts. Even though we've been forgiven and saved, we still are in our fallen condition. And lust can still conceive in our hearts when it's fed and nurtured. And let me tell you something. This is what the world is set to do. It is not just philosophically, theologically, ideologically set against God, against Christ, against the church, and against believers. It comes after you aggressively, and it looks for a a landing place in the lust of your flesh. The world is trying to get by the biblical barrier and land in the category of your lust. That's the tempting you on the inside for what is illicit. This, of course, is the fountainhead of sin. Lust conceives in the heart and brings forth sin, James 1. And then it wants to come at you from the lust of the eyes. Your eyes have an appetite. We even say that, don't we? We say, feast your eyes on that. Feast your eyes on that. Feast your eyes on that. Lust of the flesh is base internal desire. 
Lust of the eyes is external, appearance. But both are gateways to the soul. That's why Job said in Job uh, 31, I made a covenant with my eyes. What do you watch? What do you read? What do you see on a computer? What do you see in the movies, television? The world that you are to hate with a perfect hatred wants to push with all its power and force, and it's never had more power and force than it does in this generation, past all those spiritual barriers and get to your inside and tap your lust. And it also wants to attract you on the outside to make you covet, desire things. The two overlap, of course. And the third gateway is boastful pride. Has there ever been a, a, a society in the history of the world that has been more manifestly egocentric than this one? The Facebook era? Boastful pride of life is a Greek word meaning a bragger. Pretentious egotism, self-promotion, creating your online self to appear to be something more than you are, something a whole lot better than everybody else is. He's talking about sensuality, rises out of the inside of us. The world wants to touch that and inflame it. Talking about covetousness, the world wants you to see things that cause you to be dissatisfied and long for that which is not yours. And the world wants you to fill yourself with yourself. As if life were a movie about you. You can't love that system. Why would you love something that wants to do that? And by the way, if you do love the world, in spite of what it is, the love of the Father is not in you. There's a final note. We do not love the world because of what it is, who we are, what it does, and forth where it's headed. We don't love the world because of where it's going. Verse 17, the world is passing away. That's paragetai. It's disintegrating. It's self-destructing. Death principle is operative, not only in every individual, but in the whole world. The whole system has in it destructive forces. It is its own enemy. It is passing away. It's dying. I've been reading a really interesting book called The Emperor of All Maladies. It is the biography of cancer. And it's written by a brilliant writer, one of the best writers I've ever read, an Indian national who is a, a, a medical doctor. It's a profound book. And uh, I, I, I found myself unable to put it down, but here's his thesis. He's a secular man with no interest in Christianity. And he writes the history of cancer, and his thesis is cancer can never be cured. Never. 
because, and he doesn't know why. And I'm probably 500 pages into the book, and he doesn't know why. There's something wrong inside man. There's something horrible inside humanity that causes it to die. Cancer is simply the natural course of corruption that takes over everybody eventually. His thesis, and he's a cancer expert, cancer cannot be cured. Can't. And that, from a pathological standpoint, from a medical scientific standpoint, because cancer is simply, simply a symptom of being human. We all in us have death operating. So does the whole system. So does the whole system. Don't love the world because of what it is, who you are, what it does, where it's going. But what's the end of verse 17? He who does the will of God, what? Lives forever. Lives forever. You want that? Eternal life? Not eternal death? You have overcome the world. You have overcome the evil one. Are you ready for this? You've overcome death. Let's pray. Thank you for being so gracious, Lord, to love us in a redeeming way and give us your truth. Do your work in every heart. Help us to come out and be separate and love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because if we do, your love is not really in us. That's a test. May you be honored as we think about these things, as we draw near to you. In your son's name, amen.